Looking to learn ways to increase your income, save on taxes, or become a more successful real estate investor? Feel like you're lacking the knowledge and skills to make it big? That's about to change right here, right now. Welcome to RobNet's Real Estate Rundown. I'm your host, Shannon RobNet, and this is where you gear up with the most valuable and actionable advice from the industry's top minds. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, this podcast is designed to help you build your skills, boost your knowledge, and turn you into a confident real estate investor. Let's get into the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Real Estate Rundown. We're hearing a lot in the marketplace right now about distressed assets, assets coming that are going to be in the bank's possession. They're underwater. They can't pay off the mortgages, those kinds of things, which is exactly why I brought on my next guest who specializes in that and has got a lot of information for us. So let's welcome Adam Grower to the show. Adam, welcome to the uh, Real Estate Rundown. How are you? It's nice to meet you. Thanks so much, Shannon. Just for clarification, my name is Pronounced Gower. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. That's quite the change when your display name says Adam and, I, and you're Clarence. No, my first name is Adam. Okay. Uh, my last name is Gower. G-O-W-E-R. Yeah, that's, Gower. Yeah, I thought that's what I said. I apologize to my audience for mispronouncing the name. I know it's how much right. I hate that. You know, I'll tell you so, but I'll tell you something. You know, I read names all the time. And sometimes oh, yeah. I read words and I don't know how they're pronounced. I go through no. life mispronouncing. Then suddenly, you know, you hear it actually said properly and you think, oh. That's how it's done right. anyway. Well, I'm not going to pull off the accent, that's for sure. But where are you from? I'm originally from Northern England, an industrial town called Manchester. Okay. Very popular soccer team over there. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> Doing especially well at the moment. Yeah. So since we don't talk sports and politics on this particular podcast, let's uh, give everybody kind of a high-level overview of, of what you do in the real estate realm and kind of how you got there in your life journey. Sure. Thanks for asking, Shannon. So what we do today is we build crowdfunding platforms for real estate professionals, for sponsors, so they can raise more money online for their deals. That's our core business. Okay. Our clients manage over 35 billion of AUM and have raised over a billion dollars using the systems that we build for them. As a result of that, though, we also have a very large uh, audience of typically accredited investors, people who are interested in investing in commercial real estate through a syndication or through a crowdfunding platform or directly with a sponsor, but aren't really sure exactly what they're looking at, want to know how to do it. Now, I've been in this business for, I'm going to say, over 30 years, actually quite a lot over 30 years. Well, as somebody who's been there 27, I understand how you didn't realize it was going to sneak up on you like this. Yeah, not just that, but it makes me seem really old if I actually yeah. say over 40 years. So I'm not going to say over 40 years. It's far too long. But anyway, so my exposure to distressed real estate actually comes through three major events. The first one was the savings and loan crisis of the yeah. early 1990s, actually very late 1980s. So I was in my early 20s during the 80s, and I started working for a a ground-up multifamily sponsor. So my job was investor relations. I sat in front of investors and pitched them and raised capital from them. It was all done in person. And I was compensated with 
you know, shares in the in the deals that we were doing. I had a pretty good salary as well that I spritzed away and thought I was a multimillionaire. Then, of course, the savings and loan crisis hit. For those that don't know what happened, this was a period of time when hundreds and hundreds of banks failed and the commercial real estate industry basically imploded. So I lost everything. And the short story is I ended up in Japan working for building real estate for Universal Studios in Asia Pacific. Then I came back, I did my own deals, my own syndications. I sold out in 07, right before event number two, which was the global financial crisis. But this time I had had the foresight to get out. So I'd sold and I had no legacy problems. And I was brought into a major bank that had done billions of dollars of lending collateralized by real estate. And they needed a real estate guy to come in and help them clean their balance sheet by selling the notes, the mortgages, these uh, failed mortgages, non-performing loans to investors. And so that's what I did. And so during that cycle, oh, and then after the bank, I ended up at Colony Capital. And at Colony, I managed or was involved in a $7 billion portfolio of failed loans that had been brought in by the FDIC. But it's not brought in, bought in conjunctional partnership with the FDIC. So during the global financial crisis, I saw just about every possible way that real estate investing can go wrong across <laughs> every possible asset class that there is. I was on the sharp end of it and saw how wealth transferred during that period. And I just understood how stuff can go bad and yeah. how people make incredible wealth during these downturns. And so the third downturn is, lo and behold, today. Right now. Yeah, right now. So this is the characteristics are slightly different, but it's going to play out in very similar way as as the prior two have or the prior two major ones that I've been through. Well, you know, the, the common denominator here, Adam, that's very apparent is the banks. They get a little greedy. They loosen up the strings. They get to deploy capital. Everybody thinks it's fantastic. But, you know, as you said a moment ago, there was an incredible amount of money made on the downside of 08. There was also more than likely an incredible amount of money made on the downside of the SNL loan crisis in the 80s. However, it doesn't sound like you were involved in much of that. But we're also poised, as a lot of us know, at the next downturn. And there will be probably more money made in the downturn than was made on the uptick in 1920 and 21. Would you uh, agree with that? Yeah. So, look, you're absolutely right. There is actually no such thing as distressed real estate. The real estate is fine. It's right. earning income. Typically, I've said this before, but there are some kinds of real estate that are distressed. And that's, you know, so if you suddenly discover that the property that you just bought had a dry cleaners on it or a gas station, right. then you've got toxic land and there's all kinds of issues. But that kind of distressed real estate, let's push that to one side. The vast majority of real estate is perfectly fine. It's got, you know, rooms and the potential to earn uh, rent and it's generating rent. It just might not be enough to cover what? The debt. It's the right. debt that's the killer for real estate. And so what's actually distressed with real estate, it's not the real estate itself, it's the capital stack, the debt and the way that capital is layered onto the real estate. Does it, that is what causes the distress. So during times like this, where the cost of debt has gone to two or three times what it was just 18 months ago, now suddenly these operating businesses collecting rent don't have enough revenue to service the debt. And so now banks and lenders, or you know, it could be MES debt, it could be PREF 
equity. I mean, it could it doesn't need to be institutional capital. But those lenders now come in and they are able to take the property back, take ownership away from the original buyer because the debt is not being serviced. It's the mortgages are not being paid. So it's the capital stack that is distressed, not so, the real estate. So really, if, if it were referred to properly, it's non-performing, not necessarily distressed, right? Because it's they're unable to pay the, the commitments they've already made, but the underlying asset is usually yeah. a viable product. Insolvent. I mean, they're basically, right. their costs there are higher go. than their income. So it's insolvent. Yeah. So when you look at what's getting ready to happen, having been through two of these cycles intimately mm. and been a part of them, what do you foresee in the next 18 months, 24 months for commercial real estate in the United States? Right. So for the six, next six to 18 months, you're going to start seeing more and more assets not performing. They're going to be insolved. Their owners are not going to be able to cover the cost burdens of debt. Now, there are other layers, Shannon, on top of this. Yeah. Insurance has gone up two, three Banana. times in some markets. In other markets, we have a client in Florida whose insurance has gone on one building alone from 300000 a year to a million two. That's a 4x hike. In insurance costs. Yep. And then cost of doing of maintenance, cost of upgrades, everything's gone up. Everything's ballooned. Debt has been one of the major line items that really hurts. So what you're going to start seeing over the next six to 18 months, and it is a slow decline. It's unlike the global financial crisis of 2007, where the industry basically went off a cliff uh, and almost overnight, everything went into default and there was this frenzy of activity around it. But there was also no liquidity. People didn't have cash. And so that suppressed values even further. This time, it is a slow managed decline. Both the, the Fed and the banking regulators are intent on not seeing a precipitous collapse. We're not going to see the economy going off a cliff, but there will be a slow decline. And what that means is for investors like you and me, people are going to lose money. Investors are going to lose money. People are going to use, lose their assets. But for those on the flip side of that, there will be opportunities to acquire real estate at significant discounts to where they traded over the last two, three, or even four years, provided you know what you're doing. Getting involved in distressed real estate is a very sophisticated and complicated process because the kind of due diligence you need to do is very different from when you're in a bull market. The kind of risks that you're running are very different. The kind of unexpected surprises, not good surprises are also going to be very different than you are used to during a bull market. Well, and, and let me challenge that a little bit. You kind of took us off the edge a little bit when you said used to, but before that, you said you're going to be running different due diligence than you were in a bull market. What we've seen, I mean, in 21, everybody was putting up a non-refundable million dollar earnest money. Now that became the norm in the industry we began to see properties listed for sale with no sales price. They were put out there and it was a call for offers, something I had never seen before in my life. And so we began to see all of these things that weren't ever there before. They weren't ever something that we had seen before. The way that it was done this last cycle was new to me. And the reality was a lot of people changed their underwriting and changed their business practices to match the market. And it seems like it's proving that that didn't work out well, that the underwriting that we had, say in 2015, you know, where you do consider the what ifs, you take the time, you tour the properties, 
you know, you go through all the due diligence norms that you would normally do instead of being in the heat of the moment to get the deal. You were in the actual thought process of I'm getting ready to spend 40 or $50 million and I need to act like it. And so we saw a lot of people that underwrote to get deals, not underwrote to be successful at real estate. What yeah. I would say is that this is what this is how distressed deals come to market and mm -hmm. the kinds of risks that are different with distressed deals, particularly if you're buying from a bank. But even if you're buying from a, a seller, an owner who has to sell for some you know, reason, because they are forced sellers, for some reason, they need to get out. So it, these right. are the issues that you got to consider yeah. in due diligence during a downturn. First of all, right. in many cases, you are going to see unpriced assets. Why? Because nobody really knows what the values are. One of the biggest issues today is the bid. It's called the bid-ask spread. What somebody <laughs> expects to get versus what the reality is of the market. Right. Now, when I was at East West Bank, transacting, I sold over a billion dollars of, of distressed notes or, or non-performing loans, I should say, all collateralized by real estate. We never priced anything. We knew what the, the loan amount was and we called for offers. And what right. happens then is that you see a range of offers. There are the people that always like to low bid, right? They Whatever, they think that they're going to get something if they low bid because the seller is super distressed. Well, those people are a waste of time. Then you see the bulk of people around the middle who have done some reasonable level of underwriting and have, and have come to some conclusions based on what the asset is worth. And that is what gives you a true sense of where market value is. But there is always somebody who outbids everybody else for some reason. And that reason is... It's not something you can weave into any kind of pricing strategy if you're a seller, if you're a bank or if you're a seller. You've got to be lucky to find that buyer. And that buyer might be, for example, the person who owns the building next door. I sold. Yep. I remember one deal where we had an industrial property. We got a whole range of offers. And then we got this one offer that was just way more than anybody else. And we didn't care why. <laughs> it didn't matter. Right. We just right. sold it to this guy, but we knew that was true market right there. And the reason he bought it was because he owned the building next door. And for him, there was more value in it yeah. and less risk because he knew the area and he was going to actually occupy. So that's how assets get priced in a down market. Now, what I will tell you is that there are aspects of distressed real estate that you only really understand if you've been through it before, unfortunately. So there are things that you need to look at in your due diligence that during a bull cycle, in other words, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, whenever, you know, you're talking about looking back in time during right. the market when it was running up, what happens to real estate when a borrower or when an owner stops paying on the mortgage is that they also stop paying on everything else. So they stop right. paying subcontractors. They stop doing uh, maintenance. They might cut corners on maintenance. Who knows what's going on? You really don't know what's going on under the hood. And if you buy from a bank, you are buying as is, where is, with no reps or warranties. So it is... There's no comeback. Even if there's a broker involved, there is no comeback. You can't come back and say, well, you knew this. It doesn't work like that with distressed deals. Mm, you are buying as is. So you have much higher level of risk. So the kinds of things that you need to include in your underwriting assumptions and need to be able to project accurately are the possibility of litigation, right? So if you're buying a note, what happens if the guy throws in a bankruptcy? Now you've got to deal with a bankruptcy in order to get to the real estate. For example, deferred maintenance. 
a an owner that is in distress that is fighting hard to hold on to, and it might not be for any nefarious reasons, just what people right. do. We they take over problems. They yep. shortcut maintenance issues. Just get it done as cheaply as you can. You might not know that that's going on, right? It's not something that typically happens during a bull market. And the third thing that, for example, that you need to look at, and there's many others, but the third example I'll give you are liens. There may be liens pending that you're not aware of because the sponsor didn't pay subcontractors. And those right. liens will take priority over your position and can make it very, very expensive at the end of the day to actually get to the real estate. So it's a complicated right. process buying distress and it is unpriced. So you've got to be really careful on how you do your underwriting to get it right. Well, and we saw a lot of that in 07 and 08, where builders were losing the houses, homeowners were losing the houses, but there was unpaid bills and there was a lot of liens that came through and that created a lot of contention. A lien that's in place is easy to deal with because you can approach whoever's involved and talk to them about, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to be able to handle the situation. You know, you're going to take 70 cents on the dollar and we're going to actually get money this week. But it's the ones that are the surprise to the buyer. And that's an interesting point. And I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people, you know, you're right. In a good market, everybody is very quick to pay their bills, right? Because there's capital laying around and everything's available and, you know, all of these things can be done. But when you get to this point, and I would say that the bank is usually one of the first people that stops getting paid. Is that right? Or do, or is it the other way around? That the no, they're, they're, the, uh, they're the last. They're the last okay. in line typically because they're the only one that can actually take ownership away from you. Typically, there is, when you talk about the capital stack, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's the form of language that is used that can actually mislead investors. So mm -hmm. when you talk to investors, you are told that the bank is the first to get paid and then you're next to get paid, right? So that's right. the idea. You're not next in line to get paid. But actually, what the capital stack is describing is not this positive idea that first to get paid, which is a positive language pattern, or the second to get paid, or then you get paid after this and I get paid after that, all assumes you're going to get paid. What actually the capital stack is describing is the power to take control of the project. So the first lien holder, the bank, they have total power over the project. So if you stop paying them, they will take that project back and everybody else in the capital stack, all the investors, the pref equity, MESDEH, limited partners, preferred equity, whatever there is, that will all be wiped out. So the capital stack describes the ability to wipe out value for everybody else and the order with which that happens. There's another interesting thing that emerged during the global financial crisis when I was dealing with all these distressed deals. Something you would never imagine that can be time consuming and costly to fix and something that you don't know until you're knee deep in it or neck deep in it or whatever is shadows on title. Oh my goodness. What does that even mean? What is a shadow on title? So when you buy a property, you get title to that property, right? You get title insurance. I presume it's the same across the country. You get right. an insurance document that says, yes, you own this property. And it has a legal description that describes what that property is, right? And you can look back historically at the historical chain of title to make sure that the property you bought, that you paid for, is actually the one that you got and it's there in the insurance document. Well, mm -hmm. you would think that that is bulletproof, but in reality, it's not. 
And what we discovered, for example, not necessarily at the bank, I worked on a $7 billion, $6, $7 billion portfolio at Colony Capital, subsequent to the bank. We found title documents where the legal description, which should, I'm going to draw a, a square with my fingers here, right? For those listening, not watching. But where the title, the legal description says, the property goes from this corner to this corner, to this corner, down to this corner, then back to where you started. Right, you've got perfect, whatever, encapsulated area that is what you own. One example was we found title that said it goes from this corner here to this corner here to this corner, then stops. So it didn't actually go back to the originating corner. So what do you actually own? We found documents where when you actually looked at the title and drew on a map, you should always ask the title company, just I want you to draw on a map exactly what I'm getting. They will give that to a team in-house that will look at the legal description. This is really in the weeds, but this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. We'll look at the legal description. They will draw on a map what it is that you own. Well, we found title where they drew on a map something else, somewhere else. It wasn't actually the property that we'd bought or the loan had been made on. What had happened was a loan officer, and this not at the bank, right? By the way, this was at a failed bank, not the bank I worked at. Right. But what had happened was some loan officer had been passing documents around internally. The wrong legal description had ended up in a file. So it's called a shadow on title. You got to so, fix that. So in reality, there were two loans on one property and no loan on another property in this particular instance, right? But all I know is that when we drew on a map what the loan was securing, it right. wasn't what we thought the loan was. It was something else. It was somewhere yeah. else down the road. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute. How did that happen? Well, and you know how that happens is exactly like you described in an improper due diligence, right? I mean, when you really come down to these tips that you're talking about, and, and listeners really need to take it, pay attention to this, these are the kind of things you should do anyway, right? You should be looking at having this actual document, this meets and bounds drawn out, so that you can identify that you are buying 123 Jump Street or wherever it is you're buying so that you know that in a good market, in a bad market. But again, when you're in a good market, everything's trading quickly and everybody's happy about it and we're moving along and blah, blah, blah. And you don't seem to see that. But there can be these things. And especially when you're in a situation where something like this happens, then all of a sudden there's unintended or unaccounted for costs and time and everything else that that you have to go through and prove. One of the things that we see is that, you know, markets surge and then these kind of things happen and then we reset. We all come back to fundamentals. It's just like after a basketball team loses, a coach takes you back and you do drills, right? You start all over and let's go back to the fundamentals. Let's talk about dribbling. Let's talk about passing. Let's mm. talk about shooting. Let's talk about the basics because it's obvious that those are missing in the marketplace that caused a lot of this cataclysmic events. When people are looking at that, it's obviously not something that needs to terrorize them. But at the same time, what I hear you saying is that if you're bidding 30, 40 cents on the dollar, you may wind up at 70 or 80 cents on the original note amount, which may be 10 or 15 or 20% more than current market value if you're not careful. Yeah, exactly. In other words, simply stated, you can end up overpaying. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Even though Even you're in a, getting a discount. Yeah. Right. Even in a recessionary market. Yeah. So let's talk about timelines, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody that's come out of the last three years has seen very accelerated, very rapid timelines with closings. It wasn't unusual to see a 50 or $60 million apartment complex close in 60 days, right? That was just what was required in order to get the deal, those kinds of things. 
When you're talking about timelines for distressed assets, are they similar timelines? Are they shorter timelines? Because everybody's as is, where is, and so it's cash on the barrel head and there's not really time for due diligence. How does that work oftentimes? It's a really good question. All right, so I can just reflect on my experience mm -hmm. of having been on the sell side of distressed assets in the billions of dollars, right? I mean, I sold hundreds of assets, all distressed. Timelines, are you sitting down? You are sitting down. Timelines can compress to, forget it, 50 days, 60 days, not a prayer. Five days, six days, you want the mm -hmm. deal, close on Friday. So you have to be ready. You have to have a team in place and you have to be ready to act with blistering speed. And the wow. reason for that is that when banks, if banks start selling, and that's a whole different question. Plus, even getting under the hood of a bank is really difficult. That's a whole different topic. But banks are generally quarterly based. And so what you'll find is that what they want to do is to get as much of this bad debt off their books by the end of the quarter. So at the beginning of the quarter, you're going to have a little bit more time. But as you move towards the end of the quarter, and Friday is the last day of the quarter, if you can show up on time and you can close, you will win assets. But you're talking about, I, I remember tra transacting on deals where on significant scale deals where buyers, I would meet them on a, on a Wednesday morning, meaning that the first contact I had them with them was on a Wednesday morning send them the entire package, right? Here's everything you need to know about this asset, everything we've got on this asset, and close on Friday, like within 48 mm. hours. It was yeah. extremely exciting. Uh, but More stressful. <laughs> it was on my side. For me, it was exciting. Yeah. For everybody yeah. else, it was very stressful. But the point is that you have to have the capacity to be able to do due diligence very quickly. When you talk about hard money, that's how you win deals, is to yeah. give sellers absolute certainty of close by going in with hard money. But you need to be absolutely sure. Also, you know what you're doing and you've underwritten an asset properly. Otherwise, exactly as you've described, you can lose your shirt. And, you know, that's the thing. There's always a game, right? I mean, and we'll call it a game, but there's always a strategy. And what we see a lot of people do is they learn that strategy by losing their shirt a time or two. But, you know, then with repetition, they start to figure it out and they start to get, to get good at it. So when you're looking at where we're at in the cycle, having been through two other ones, and let's play it like if we were to call it an English football game. Yes, I know. There's nine parts of a baseball yeah. game. I so would where, say are we at? where are we at in this? Early innings. I'm telling so you, early this game has basically started. People are sitting down. They're still okay. going to get their hot dogs. Cup over, you're getting your beer. People are still walking around. A few balls have been thrown. You're just settling into your seat. Yeah. The key to success today, and we got a date stamp it, Shannon. I hate to do this because I know it's better to have what do you call yeah, it? The, uh, it's evergreen content. August. But it's August 23, right? August yep. 23. As it stands today, the game has just started. And the key word is to success in this market, patience. Right. Be patient. Look at absolutely everything that moves. Underwrite as much as you can. Get used to what you're looking at. Get used to seeing what there is. Because first of all, it's going to take a long time. But it's take between six and 18 months. Early, by the end of this year, you'll start seeing more distressed assets coming to market. Into 24 and the first two quarters of 24 is when you're going to see even more. And you need to be ready. And the best way to be ready is to is to get hyper busy, but don't pull the trigger just yet. It's called, catching, right. people say, catching a falling knife. I think of uh, Damocles, catching a falling sword. 
right? right. So the sword of Damocles hung over his head by a horsehair, right? So for the, the right. sword, of, that it's like catching a falling sword. If you buy now because you think you're getting a discount, you might get it right. You might make a mistake because the market is still in decline. So you right. get a discount, but it's still falling, catching a falling sword. So it's better to be patient. So let's talk about deals that aren't in distress compared to deals that are in distress. Okay. okay. We have market fundamentals. Like you said, the asset is working. Using the example of your client that went from $400,000 in insurance to 1.2 million. You know, you've got something there that this owner may or may not have a problem, but the apartment complex right next door, there's nothing wrong with. You're running the NOI. They've accounted for the increase in insurance. When you're looking at that, and, and I hear a lot of people, they get caught up in the headlines, right? The headlines of the market is crashing, the market is falling. There are still good deals can be had that can be underwritten, that can be valued, that can, you know, you don't have the, the lean issues. You don't have some of the other issues that you've talked about. You can get debt that makes it work. Your NOI works. You're still winding up with cash flow. Why would someone choose not to buy that deal that's just a normal deal? and choose to buy a distressed asset and or reverse? Yeah, I mean, a fair question. I am not sure that the scenario described is not a distressed situation in current terms. And the reason that I say that is, yeah, it might be clean and you might have an owner that is current on his loan and paying as, as promised and has been diligent on maintenance and is upgrade, you know, turning units and whatever, maximizing rents, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a clean deal. Right, you, you walk in this clean deal. But if you are underwriting to seven or eight percent debt, the seller does not have seven or eight percent debt. They may have three percent or four percent debt. So their expectations at some point were that they would sell that asset for more than you can possibly pay. Right. So there is downward pressure on prices. So to the extent that a seller is willing to accept that and take a lower price, yes, it's not distressed, but it's certainly less than they were hoping for. There's no yeah, way anyone that's the bid they ask, right? That. That's the bid ask, exactly, yeah. where they come yeah. to realize that it's not worth as much as they wanted. And what we're seeing, I'm starting to see a lot of people that bought assets in 13 and 14 that didn't sell in 19 and 20. And that are now looking at it going, you know what, for the foreseeable future, for the next three years, my asset is not going to be worth any more than it is today. So they're deciding, well, I might have missed the peak, but I'm going to go ahead and pick this up now, or I'm going to go ahead and sell this now. And we're seeing legitimate deals that you can underwrite to an 8% mm -hmm. debt. You've got current NOIs. They didn't buy. Let's make up the story. Let's make up the backstory on your guy that went from his insurance from 400 to 1.2. Let's say that he bought that in 2021, right? So it was a cash flowing deal, paid a very low cap rate, got some decent debt. But now all of a sudden his expenses are out of whack that's causing him this pain, right? Mm -hmm. It's taken all of his cash flow. It's now eating his cash reserves. He finds himself in this situation. And since he bought at the peak of the market, he has got the farthest to fall, but there's these other people that they're still going to make a, a modest profit. They're still going to get out of the deal. They're still going to enjoy what they thought was going to be their returns. It's just not quite as high as it was going to be. We saw this a lot in 2007. There were still sellers. Not every seller was a distressed seller, but the sellers that were getting products sold in that market had come to terms with what the new price was, right? Exactly. Yeah. I'm and when you're... And well, when you're doing that and you're bringing it all together, you're you're coming at it. So so you have the option to go with distressed. It's not that everything that's going to be sold in 25 is going to be distressed assets. 
There are lots of people selling for lots of reasons. Yeah, look, I mean, a lot of our clients look for generational assets, something that's been held by a family, you know, or an owner for 20, 30 years. Maybe it's been passed down over the years from one generation to another, but it's been owned for a long time. And they will underwrite to not only higher debt, but also significantly higher cap rates, right? They might be looking for an eight or higher cap rate. Mm-hmm. So they will make an offer and that's a clean deal, right? The seller's yeah. happy because their basis is zero. You right. know, their, their father, their parents bought it 30 right. years ago or they built it 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, it cost them, I don't know, whatever, 5 million for 20 yeah. today, yeah. even at a depressed price. Those are clean deals. There's no doubt. And here's the other thing, Shannon, here's the other point. When I was first in the early 80s, mortgage rates were high teens, low 20s. Right. Bank right. deposit. I put money in the bank, zero risk. And I remember earning 12% interest right. on deposits at the bank. And right. people were doing deals in those days. I worked for a multifamily, ground up multifamily sponsor. And we wrote and underwrote deals and they penciled and we got investors and we got debt. And we put deals together and they worked out, right? Until whatever. I mean, until the, until they didn't. <laughs> until they didn't. But they worked out. What's right. happening today? And so you're right. There's always going to be in any market, there are going to be opportunities. People may not be able to make as much money to selling today as they could have done if they'd have sold last year or the year before. Right. But it doesn't mean that they're not going to make profit. They're not going to make money. And that's how deals get done. The reality is what I hear you saying, Adam, Mm. and I really think this is important, is there are deals to be had and there is a way to profit and to benefit from the non-performing assets and everything. But it really is even more specialized than just buying and selling real estate. And one that's trending in that area, that's heading that direction, definitely needs to take the time to consider. You know, there's a lot of people that were underwriting deals that they never even made offers on. They were underwriting deals that they made offers on. They never made it to best and final. They kept underwriting deals, but they got good at underwriting deals. This is another scenario where this sounds like a really good idea is to underwrite distressed assets and then watch what happens to them afterwards and see how they perform or see what other people have to do. Because practice is what you want to do before you start pulling the trigger and executing with real money and then finding out there's a lot of these issues on the backside. I mean, on the other side of that, yeah. with everything else, with great risk can come great reward. And so there's that balance there where you pay attention to this and you can learn. And so it sounds like there's if you're an adrenaline junkie and you really love the facts action, you want the casino of real estate to happen. It sounds like Adam's saying that it's coming. And it'll be here in about six to 18 months. Yeah, but I think I do have to interrupt you. I do not advise anybody see real estate as a casino. Real (laughs) success in real estate is a long-term conservative way. It's the only way. If if you want to roll the dice, eventually you're going to lose everything. Well, and the reality is is just this, Adam. What we've come out of is an environment where people did see it as a very short-term game. People were day trading real estate. They were in and out of deals. Sometimes I've seen as as little as nine months were providing fantastic returns. There was no reason to get out of them. But then what they did was that they placed that capital in another deal that didn't go quite as well. Then they, you know, those kinds of things. So, but this is an opportunity for people to pick up assets at a distressed price at a lower price. Where would you say is a great resource for people to start finding out where these assets are coming from? My website is the first place you should go. Sign up for the the newsletter. 
at uh, galcrowd.com because we have a network of thousands of developers who are and sponsors who are all out there looking for deals. And as mm -hmm. those deals come around, we're going to start introducing them to our own investor network. All right, so that's mm -hmm. the pitch over. Commercial break over. The other way to find deals is to start making friends with banks. Go to your bank, whoever your bank is, and ask who is the special asset manager. That's a euphemism. Special assets are bad loans. So find right. your special asset manager. He or she is getting busier and expecting to get busier. So start there. That's a good place to start. Wine and dine them, not literally, but to get to know them and they will bring you deals potentially. Receivers, go to receivers. Receivers are people that banks hire to manage distressed assets. And part of their job typically is to sell them at some point. So befriend yeah. receivers. Make friends with brokers, right? It's a great resource. Brokers are hungry at the moment. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Their uh, volumes have gone down, dropped through the roof or dropped whatever. Like, there's no volume. Through the roof and through the floor, they're in the basement. Through the floor, wherever they are. <laughs> exactly. Brokers, revenue or income has gone down. Transactions, volumes have gone down. But brokers know who they sold to. They know right. who they signed leases for. They know who's yeah. looking for leases. They know who has vacancy. If they're a good broker, they have their eyes on the market. They know where the stress is. They can help give you insights and yeah. they will get, they will bring you deals. So there's four yeah. options, receivers, bankers, brokers, and gowercrowd.com. <laughs> there you go. Well, Adam, I want to thank you for being on the show and providing all this valuable information. And guys, oh. it is a new game, but it's not a new game. It's a different inning in a cyclical market. And this is the one thing that Adam is living proof of having survived two already. You can make it. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be different, but it is going to be a cycle. And if you are a student of history, like Adam and I both are, you're going to see the similarities between this cycle, the last cycle, the one in the 1980s. But you'll also begin walking through this to see when it's coming around again in another five, seven or nine years. Because banks do the same thing. They get greedy, they loosen the purse strings, and then they have a contraction like this. So, Adam, I want to say thank you to you for coming on the show. And, guys, remember that, GowerCrowd.com. If you want to find out more information about what he's got coming down the pipe and how you can be involved, definitely do that. Also, guys, like and subscribe to this channel. We appreciate you as our listeners. We want to get the content out for you. Throw comments in there about what you want to hear next or what kind of guests you want to see. And we'll get that out to you. And thanks again, guys, for tuning into the Real Estate Rundown. Thanks for listening. I hope you found tons of value in this show. It would help us a lot if you could rate and leave us a five-star review as we continue our mission to help others just like you in their real estate journey. Thank you, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Robnet's Real Estate Rundown.